Hello and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex Wilhelm and I'm joined as I am each and every Friday by my friend, it's Marianne Azevedo, a senior reporter on the TechCrunch side on the FinTech Beat. Marianne, hi. Hey, Alex. How's it going? Is it miserably hot where you are like it is here where it's been over 100 degrees for like four weeks straight? Normally, I would engage in weather-based chat as a way to find a way to make fun of Texas. But in this case, I'm going to put that aside because we had a very important conversation before the show, which was Marianne was introduced not only to death metal band logo fonts, <laughs> but also to death metal band names. And it turns out that if you are a respectable person out in society, the name Infant Annihilator does not ring mm. well mm. in your mind. No. So, not at all. Marianne will not be at the next Texas Death Fest, which I uh, would love to go to. Actually, this was where I saw Fit for an Autopsy for the first time. All right. Um, these names, the show, these names. I know, I know. But like, it's not always what you think. Cattle Decapitation, for example, is a band against animal cruelty. So anyways, oh. on the show this week, we are talking about Lula and how they are frugal and doing well. Weights and biases, a big round in the ML Ops space. And then Blue Jeans is folding. There'll be no puns there, I promise. Then the theme is... Startup shutdowns in general, we have a couple of names to talk about, some good news, some bad news. It won't be that negative, don't worry. And then WeWork is back in the news, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, if you're a longtime equity listener, you may have thought we had finally transcended the great WeWork saga, uh, but no, there's a new chapter. So Marianne, to kick things off, you wrote about Lula. It's a very interesting company that did some cool things. Tell us all about it. Yeah. So Lula is a case of a company that I wrote about a couple of years ago when they raised a series A. They're an insure tech startup. They had raised $18 million in 2021. Didn't hear back from them really until recently. And they had raised $35.5 million in a Series B round. What really caught my attention about what Lula's doing is they're, they're claiming that they've had massive growth. Monthly revenue has multiplied by 20 times since February 2022. That's a lot. It's a lot. And I think that's partly because they, they started out building an insurance API and, and it was in their words, aim to eliminate the need for companies to build their own insurance infrastructure. But over time, they realized that these companies could use even more help than that. So now they offer software to help them do things like reduce insurance premiums, insurance-related expenses. They offer tools like risk management, claims management. They can even help them vet drivers. And when I talk about them, they're for now mainly focused on like transportation sector. They work with ride hailing companies, trucking companies, car rental companies. So it's kind of a unique and very interesting model. Yeah, I absolutely like it. And in your story, you were talking about them being, you know, the stripe for insurance. And we were talking about what that means. And I actually normally I protest mm -hmm. at the X for Y yeah. framing Marianne. But in the case of Lula, Given that they do stuff across the kind of insurance software space, it does seem that like they have a, a portfolio of products broad enough to kind of warrant a Stripe-ish name, if right. you will, or, or, or framing. Yes. And, I, and like you, I mean, I, I am a little skeptical anytime a company claims to be the Stripe for this or Rex for that or whatever the case may be. But yeah, in this situation, it does feel like they've really broadened sufficiently enough to maybe, you know, like have, have earned <laughs> that sort of uh, title or moniker. And another thing that really stood out about this company is just basically the, the way they've chosen to grow. And I talked to one of the co-founders and interestingly, he started the company with his twin brother in 2020. 
all of us at TechCrunch, it really warmed our hearts that his twin had tweeted about when he was in college, he he would paste photoshopped headlines on TechCrunch in his dorm room uh, <laughs> as part of a dream to land in, in TechCrunch one day. So, you know, that just kind of warmed our hearts. And so, yeah, they did end up in TechCrunch. But one of the things that they did is kind of counter to what a lot of startup founders chose to do in 2021 and 2022 is to adopt a very frugal mindset. That means instead of offering really like lavish salaries and, and these massive bonuses, they kind of did the opposite. Not saying they didn't offer competitive compensation, but there was more like realistic stuff. And so they did that because they were saying they kind of felt that, that this downturn was coming. They thought it might be hard to raise a Series B whenever they were ready to raise a Series B. So they kind of braced themselves. And they said at first they thought it might be hard to hire like quality people, but it actually turned out to be advantageous for them because a lot of people gave them feedback like, oh, well, you know, it's kind of refreshing to come into a company knowing that you're kind of being realistic about how you want to grow. And we don't have to worry that you might lay us off in six months. Right. You're not hiring us just so that way you can try to raise more money so that way you can keep the doors open. You have a much more... I don't want to say traditional, but perhaps grounded perspective on, on spend. And the result is clear, which is that they raised a bunch of money and they're doing good. So it's kind of like a, a success story. The, the nuance here, though, I feel is that a lot of companies spend, a lot of startups spend money on demand generation, marketing, sales, and so forth. I wonder if that's not a crutch in certain cases when product market fit isn't clear. Because mm. this company mm -hmm. managed to conserve costs and grow so much, you would think that their growth would have been constrained by the lack of spend. That's the traditional kind of logic, but not really when you have great product market fit. So I, I wonder if when we talk about outlier startup companies, the ones that really do scale to 100 million in revenue quickly, go public and do very well, if we're talking about actual product market fit versus the rest of the startups out there, which are kind of limping along using VC dollars to drive demand. Yeah, that's a great point, Alex. And that is, it reminds me that I did neglect to mention that they claim they've increased their valuation by 5x compared to their 2021 raise. Now, unfortunately, they didn't share the number. So I'm having to take their word for that. But if that's true, which I'm assuming it is, then that's pretty significant too, because right now a lot of startups are raising either down or flat rounds. So if they've really increased their valuation by 5X compared to two years ago, that is also impressive. They claim they're expecting to hit $100 million in ARR over the next three to four quarters and uh, be profitable in the next couple of quarters. So I'm going to check back in with them in the next few months or year and just see how all that's going. Well, <clears throat> I have the valuation, at least according to PitchBook. So, ha. Oh. And it was 5X. Shout out to them. Excellent. According to PitchBook data, so caveat, this is as accurate as, as PitchBook is, which is generally speaking, rather good. Their post-money valuation after their seed round was just under 60 million. And their post-money valuation after their recent round was 290. So 60 to roughly 300 is about 5X. Impressive. It, they, they rounded a little bit, yeah. but we'll allow it. That's fine. That's impressive. Also, startups, just, just tell us what your numbers are. No one dies. <laughs> And then I don't have to log into one password, use my fingerprint, get my PitchBook password, <laughs> log back into PitchBook, look you up, and then find it in the middle of the show. It'll save me between 17 and 19 seconds per week. Thank you. Well, I'm glad you found that, Alex. That's, that <laughs> just proves, proves the point that, uh, yeah, 5X, when we see so many other startups, like I said, either one of three things, not able to raise at all, <laughs> mm -hmm. raise but at a flat valuation, 
or raise at a down valuation. So again, this this company stood out to me for a lot of reasons. Looking forward to see what's next. I want to throw in just like a couple of data points before I move on to weights and biases. So Bessemer, a venture capital firm, and Forbes, a publication that I read often. Shout out Alex Conrad and everyone over there, lovely folks. They did this thing called the Cloud 100, and essentially it's a it's a collection of data they put out each year on what they consider to be the leading late stage startups because basically everyone does software, so cloud means kind of most things. Anyways, the data set I just parsed today does show that uh, unicorns in general on this kind of leading list of companies are cutting their burn uh, and they're actually managing to find that that way to reduce their overall exponential base. So when we talk about this company managing this early, mm-hmm. sure, they were, they were quick to it, mm-hmm. but other companies are, it seems, catching up, although they're growing more slowly than they were before. So there is that trade-off there, at least in their case. Mm. So it's, I think that's good news. Yeah. All right, Marianne, I know you prepared this statement for us. So can you please give us a a definition of ML ops (laughs) and how it's different from, I'm kidding. (laughs) See, we should, we got to do video on the show because if you could have seen Marianne's face on the Zoom when I said that. You are cruel, Alex. Yeah. This, this is an interesting name for a company though, right? Weights and biases. Well, it makes, it makes kind of sense because in a model like an LLM, you have to set Weights. And that essentially, I think, tunes the model to have a bias, but not in a negative sense. So weights and biases is kind of cause and effect the way that I read it. Uh-uh, that makes sense. I'm, I just made that up. So I learned something new every time we talk, Alex. If I got that wrong, weights and biases, please send your emails to techcrunch.com. <laughs> Thank you. So why is weights and biases on the show? It's because they just raised $50 million. And Marianne, we tend to see companies raise larger rounds, mm-hmm. like the Lula round mm-hmm. was a multiple of its preceding round. In this case, they actually raised less because they had raised, I think it was a $135 million round before. This was 50. They've raised 250 now. And the valuation is 1.25 billion, so 1.2 billion pre, if you will. And they are making dev tools for machine learning. This is often under the the rubric of ML ops, machine learning mm-hmm. operations similar to data ops and, and other sorts of things. They have a, a, a multi-part approach, much like Lula, but in this case, they can work on LLMs, Trad, ML, and so forth. So it's a company that's certainly of the moment, but not one that I had heard from too recently. Yeah. So my vibe, Marianne, here is that it shows that there's going to be enough growth out there for many companies in the ML and AI space to eat. Well, yeah, I actually don't think it's such a big deal or anything bad when a company raises less than they did in their last rounds. I don't necessarily think that's a negative signal. In fact, it may be a positive one. I mean, maybe they're like, okay, we don't need that much more cash, but we could take this much and use it to do whatever, whatever. So like... I don't think that's such a big deal, but I'm not surprised that we're seeing more money going into this sector. Of course, it's obviously such a hot space right now. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think investors everywhere are looking for like companies in the space that they feel like will be good bets. So interestingly, the ex GitHub CEO, Nat Friedman and former Y Combinator partner were among the investors alongside Co2, Insight Partners and others. Yeah. When you get into having raised nine figures, your cap table begins to look like a kindergarten class photo, like everyone's in there, <laughs> yeah. you know, everyone's welcome. <laughs> a couple of data points in Kyle's piece for TechCrunch, Weights and Biases now has 700,000 users up from 100K in 2021. That tracks with the growth of interest in LLMs and kind of Neo AI tools. And it has more than a thousand paying users. I don't know how that translates to, to revenue growth per se, but certainly it, it's seen some traction. And then finally, there are a number of ML ops tool sets or platforms out there. And we cited Selden, FedML, Quack, Quack, 
Q W A K. I don't know how to pronounce that. I don't know how to pronounce that either. (laughs) Anyways, uh, Galileo, Striveworks, Arise with a Z, Comet, and Tecton are the other names. That's so funny. It's a long list of companies in the ML ops space. Obviously, we will keep an eye on it. It's very active, very interesting, and we do love a startup cluster. Yes, we do. But not all companies are doing as well as Weights and Biases and Lula this week. In the headlines was Blue Jeans. Have you ever used Blue Jeans? No, actually, to be honest with you, it's a, it's one of those companies that like has a really cool name, but I honestly didn't really pay much attention to it. Why is that name cool? My first thought is, what is that song by David Bowie? What was isn't it Blue Jean? I, I know the song Billy Jean. No, David Bowie. Blue Jean, you're right. Yes, okay. I think that's why I like this name because I love that song. Right? It's a great, great song. But I, I have to confess, I hadn't really paid that much attention to what Blue Jeans does. It was it was a video conferencing company, basically, right? That yes. Verizon bought in 2020. A Zoom competitor is that would that be accurate to say? That's my understanding. More tuned towards the B two B use case than what we tend to do. Like, I mean, I remember hosting Zoom family meetups on Sundays yeah. in early COVID. Right. So I think more B two B. Right, right. So sadly for Blue Jeans, Verizon decided that it's sunsetting its suite of Blue Jeans products. They chose to kill the B2B app, they said, due to the changing market landscape. (laughs) Which means that everyone went back outside. Now, here's the thing about Verizon. We used to work for them. Yes, that's right. We did. Yes. They used to own us. Giving people the history, TechCrunch sold to AOL. AOL was later sold to Verizon, and then they bought the the carcass of Yahoo, and they smushed them together and called it Oath. Then they renamed it Verizon Media Group, and then they they kicked us out. (laughs) and sold us to private equity. And now we're Yahoo again, but we're still partially AOL. And when we were at Verizon, they also bought blue jeans and then they, they killed it off. So essentially, if you're a company and Verizon offers you a check, sure, just don't expect to be there in more than two years. Yeah. I mean, the co-founders apparently of blue jeans left within two years of the deal going through. Both of them did. So not, not a huge surprise. I will say, though, they are a fine cell phone provider. Yes, they are. Something positive. All right. Folding up the Blue Jean story and putting that back on the shelf, we are going to dive into what's going on with Cindy and Proterra right after this very short break. Unfortunately, Blue Jeans is not the only company that we've seen this week have some struggles and actually have to shut down. Tage in Africa wrote about a Kenyan logistics startup, Cindy, shutting down and trying to sell its assets. Yeah, it's kind of a sad story. I mean, e-commerce in Africa is a very interesting part of the startup and, and technology business world. If you don't know about Jumia, look it up and how that company has evolved throughout time. But in the case of, of Cindy, things didn't work out. The company was going through workplace reductions, like a 10% cut last July, cut another 54 people in October of last year. In February of this year, it kind of dropped its end-to-end fulfillment offering in Nigeria, which is a key market in the larger African economy. And now it appears to be essentially kaput. So for a company based out of Kenya that was worth, I think, over $80 million in its last round. Yeah. It's pretty disappointing to see this, but not unique. It's certainly not unique to the the African continent, let alone the e-commerce space, but just kind of another sad story of a company that tried. It it is. And and it's clear that they've been struggling for a while, right? Trying really hard to save itself. And they tried to raise $100 million last year, but only got a fraction of that funding. Valued at over $80 They raised, I think, $26.5 million. So, I mean, unlike a lot of companies that have shut down, at least they didn't raise like this massive amount of money before they had to shut down, I I, I guess, right? I mean, trying to find a silver lining here, but still unfortunate for the company. And I guess the whole 
the whole region is just a setback, right? And in B2B e-commerce companies in general, we've seen a lot of them struggle in the past couple of years. Yeah. On, on that point, one thing that blew my mind was, I think this was 2021, there were a bunch of companies raising ridiculous amounts of money to do kind of like retailer roll-ups on Amazon. And they were just oh, raising yeah, just- Oh, yeah. Like Thrust.io, was it? Oh, if, dude, a thousand points for having that right off the yeah. top. Um <laughs> Like what happened to those companies? The aggregators, like the e-commerce aggregators. Yeah, there was like a new yeah. one every week. Yeah. And then that was back when Shopify was sky high. And, you know, we were seeing kind of a, a transition to greater e-commerce spend. In retrospect, it was more of a demand pull forward than an actual inflection point in the, the e-commerce market more generally, at least by the data that I've seen. Yeah. So I'm not shocked that Cindy is struggling. I mean, it's smaller than, than Jumia. It does somewhat similar things and, and Jumia is also having problems. So that's that. It appears to be a story of cash running low, business going under. Yeah. Then there's Proterra, Marianne, which does battery powered stuff for like public transit. They are a well-known name. They were public and they are now in bankruptcy proceedings, protections, if you will. And it's a different story because they weren't actually out of money. Right. I was trying to chase this down for everybody because I wanted to fully explain what we're seeing. And normally when a company goes bankrupt, you look at their liabilities, debts, and it's like huge. Mm -hmm. And then their assets and it's like tiny. But in this case, the company ended its, its June 30 quarter with $64 million in cash and short-term investments of like $157 million. So they still had a lot of capital. Mm -hmm. The problem is they also had a lot of debt. And I think they were gross margin negative in their most recent quarter. So maybe they just decided to pull the ripcord now? It's yeah. only thing I can kind of figure out. Yeah. I mean, the filing from Monday said they had total assets of $818 million, total debts of $609 million. So to your point, when you when you see those numbers, you're like, hmm, okay, usually it's the inverse, right? Greater debt than assets. So why are they doing this? It's perplexing. I mean, the only thing I can think of is that they pretty much figure that th why prolong the inevitable? Like they don't see them being able to recover and just for things to continue to get worse. So they're like, well, we might as well just go ahead and file for bankruptcy from now. Yeah, I think that's dead on. So the company's negative operating cash flow in the first half of this year was $69 million, give or take, which is down from 117 in the first half of last year, but still pretty material. And I think on the asset side, what I would say, and I'm not trying to be at all rude to a company that's struggling, I hope Proterra finds an interesting path forward because I'm in favor of electrification in general, so I'm not trying to be a dick. But their inventory went from $170 million on the books at the end of last year to $292 million at the Ooh, halfway point of this year. That's not good. So, yeah, it sounds like... Unlike NVIDIA, which has sold every chip it can possibly make, inventory is piling up, which is an asset technically, but it does change the overall asset liabilities picture that you outline. Yeah, first, and we're not talking about like a small asset here, right? We're talking electric trucks. I mean, that costs money to, to store even, right? Just think about that. The cost involved with all this excess inventory and trying to to store it, for example. I just really hope that the, the great boom of optimism in self-driving cars and electrification of transportation, despite some setbacks, despite some honest efforts that didn't go well and some folks 
like a Nicola with the fraud that we're bending the rules. I hope that the enthusiasm doesn't go away. I know you're not a fan of autonomous cars, but like at least we can agree on electrification. Yeah, right. Two different things for sure. It is a little disappointing, I think, right? Because you felt like there was momentum in the space. But this is also there's there's a lot of money in it, right? It's not it's not a capital light industry. And I think these were pretty expensive to build and operate. No, I mean, maybe it's just too much. Yeah. And, and they have, there's competitors that might be doing it more cheaply. Maybe. I mean, I'm not going to claim here to be the expert in understanding which electric drivetrain is best for certain forms of public transit, because my knowledge of the individual products in question is uh, nil. I have written on things that are electric. Like, yeah. you know, that's, that's where my knowledge ends. But th- this brings up an interesting thing I was talking about with Tim. Tim DeChant, part of the TechCrunch Plus team, lovely guy. He covers climate sustainability for us and is a smart cookie. And we were talking about the current moment in hardware. You know, there's a lot of work on fusion. That was a big story. There's a lot of cool stuff going on in space, electric cars, electrification, batteries, decarbonization. It really feels like the like, hardware is having a moment, but outside of the consumer realm. Yeah. And so it's not being talked about. But like, remember when everything was software? It seems to be more balanced now between hard and software. That's a good point, too. That's an interesting shift, right? I felt like, yeah, before everything was SaaS, software. That's where the money is. When people say, you know, hardware is hard and it's harder than you think. Fair enough. But it turns out all SaaS companies bleed cash for like 20 years. Yeah. So maybe making things and selling them is a good business. We used to do that. Remember remember the pre-subscription economy? It's great. Right. I think if it's the right thing and it, it can really like help either a business or a consumer, then seems like not such a bad direction to go in after all. Yeah. I want to bring up one more data point because Proterra went public via a SPAC and I think it had like a $1.5, $1.6 billion valuation mm-hmm. at that time. Mm-hmm. So, Marianne, without checking, guess what the current market cap of Proterra Inc. is according to Google Finance data as of Thursday afternoon. I love when we play these guessing games. Um, That's sarcasm. 120 million? You were too sweet to them, which is very nice of you. According to Google Finance, their market cap as of the current moment is $27.5 million. Ouch. Ouch. The question is, is that more than Bird? Let's see. (laughs) Bird is worth... 24.3 24.3 million. So very close. Oh my goodness. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the, the dregs of the SPAC boom. Yeah. I mean, oh, I was never a fan of SPACs, honestly. So it's it's not a surprise that so many companies that chose to go public via SPAC are in similar situations right now. Yeah. But a lot of companies are doing well. I mean, I, I've been covering a lot of these late stage companies that are, you know, doing three, four, 500 million ARR. So don't take this as startups writ large are struggling. It's more like certain bets in certain areas and certain methods of taking companies public have proved to be less than effective, I'd say. And speaking of a company that went public via SPAC and is currently struggling, WeWork made headlines this week for admitting to having substantial doubts about its future as a going concern. This would probably fall under the category of not a surprise bucket, but Still, I mean, WeWork at its height was valued at $47 billion. $47 billion. That was a few years ago. Yeah, but that's a different time. Yeah. That's like saying John Wayne used to smoke like 10 packs of cigarettes a day. Yeah, you could get away with that. It was socially acceptable back then. Now you smoke one cigarette, no one wants to stand next to you in the entire cafe. <laughs> so things change. And I would say WeWork was 
of a moment, and that moment has passed. But the substantial doubts about its future is interesting. Companies have to tell investors if they're worried about being alive a year out, more mm-hmm, or less. Mm-hmm. And we were essentially said, Marianne, as far as I can tell, that in Q2, their business was just weaker than expected, higher churn, less growth in memberships. And when they kind of projected out their cash flows based on that data, they're worried. And they have ideas of how they can you know, mm-hmm. write things. But shared office space in a post-COVID world sounds like an odd bet. Well, yeah. First of all, there's been arguments over the years whether WeWork is really a true, you know, tech company or more of just a real estate company, right? There's some overlap there, I think. I would argue that it's a little bit of maybe a tech-enabled real estate company. Tech-enabled is like the participation trophy of tech companies. But yeah, you're right. (laughs) But anyway, think about it. It was struggling before the pandemic. So imagine when all of a sudden everybody's working from home, working remotely. The last thing they want to do is be around other people. You can imagine demand for WeWork space went way down. I did write a couple of years ago about they're they're making all these efforts to try to unbundle their services in, in hopes of attracting more people or enticing more people to work there. But honestly, I mean, the commercial real estate market is yes in the tank overall. I mean... With so many companies still either offering remote work or hybrid work, the whole industry right now is just in bad shape. There's a lot more competition now in terms of flexible space companies out there, different types, smaller ones, you know, whatever. There's a lot of competition. So basically, WeWork was saying, yeah, we're seeing a lot more churn, softer demand, slight decline in memberships. And I don't think they see that picking back up anytime soon, even though they're planning, they're going to try to do things like cut rent costs and try to restructure and negotiate more favorable lease terms and try to reduce member churn. But I don't know how successful that's going to be. Yeah. But the, the funny thing is they did build a substantial business. Even after everything you just said, in the first half of this year, they had revenues of $1.69 billion. You know, like yeah. people are using it. Still using it. Yeah. It's just that their location operating expenses, which is a revenue cost number, and this is exclusive of depreciation and amortization, was $725 million in the first, sorry, the second quarter against $844 million in revenue. And if you include depreciation and amortization in its cost of revenues, which is possibly the way you want to go about this, it looks almost gross margin negative. And that's yeah. not the, the definition of a tech company, I think, is something that can charge insanely high prices for its product compared to its costs of revenue as in high gross margin business, mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. it enables something to go much faster in the economy. And that's why they can do that. This is not that. Right. And it could have been a great medium sized business. Had they grown a bit more responsibly, perhaps, and not tried to grow at all costs. And I think they took on way, way too many leases, right? And long-term leases. So they probably just have way more space. They're paying a lot of money out in rent themselves for this space that's not really being used enough to justify all those costs. So not to oversimplify what happened here, but this major growth at all cost mentality really came back to bite them. Had they maybe taken it a little bit slower and not tried to you know go crazy, they might still be doing okay right about now. Yeah. Their cash flow numbers are a little bit wonky because I don't want to fully state that I understand how lease obligations translate to cash flow statements. So if this ends up being a little bit simplistic, shout at me. But their negative operating cash flow as they listed in their latest earnings report for the first half of this year was negative $530 million. Mm. So, you know, that's not so good. Not good at all. 
one of two things is going to happen, right? Like either they're going to like find a way to survive and we'll talk about that when it happens or they're not going to and we'll talk about that when it happens. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's a lot of people still trying to clean up this mess that was left behind by the previous founder and shout out to them for trying to make it work. Adam Newman, obviously people have been talking about this all week. They were, they were saying, how much did he get paid to step down and go away? It was like half a billion dollars or something. It was so much money. Yeah. And because we've already played this game one time, let's play round two of what's we work worth today, Mary. <laughs> yeah, I looked I looked that up as well, but those numbers have been fluctuating as well all week. So I'm going to let you. Yeah, it was an absolute trick question because oddly enough, after declining to 13 cents a share earlier in the week on Thursday, the stock's up 122% to 29 cents per share. (laughs) So now they're nearly worth a quarter billion. And like, okay, to be clear, building a business worth a quarter billion, impressive. But if it's down from 47 billion, not so much, you know, yeah. Hey, it reminds me of that old joke. Marianne, do you want to have a million dollars? Yes. Well, then start with a billion and found an airline. (laughs) So we can amend that. Do you want to have $229.956 million? Start with $47 billion and get into commercial real estate. Honestly, I can't, I cannot think too long about how much money that actually is and where it could have gone and how much yeah. good it could have done in the world or else I'll, I'll get sick to my stomach. So, all right. So last note on this, and we can move on to the end of the show, but I was going through SoftBank's earnings recently. Mm-hmm. We work investor, by the way. Big WeWork investor. Yes. Not just an investor. They were- A lead uh, investor. They kind of became the investor. Yeah. I mean, they're the ones that pretty much kind of ran up the the valuation. Yeah. Well, guess what? Vision Fund 2, SoftBank, getting back into the investing business. Numbers are going up. They're Mm. back in the market. Thank God. Because- all this talk about cash flow positivity and cleaning up cap tables and, and you know, founders need grit. I want someone to drop $100 million into another mobile pizza company. You know what I mean? Like, let's go. That was fun, at least. <laughs> what was it? What was that called? It started with a Zoom. Z. Zoom, right? Yeah, okay, that's what I thought. Z-U-M-E, though. Right? Yes. Zoom, the company that everyone still uses, is still worth $20 billion today. Really? So, yeah. I, I mean, it's a big business. I Growth didn't know that. there. But it's retained all of its COVID era revenue expansion. It hasn't shrunk to my knowledge. So Zoom's doing fine. And their CEO's great. So super interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. I mean, seeing SoftBank kind of clawing its way back here is interesting. I mean, they posted a what cumulative loss of six point three billion in its vision fund business. But Yeah, there's a lot of accounting that goes into this. Mm-hmm. I I had to do more math and currency conversions than I wanted to ever do again. The gist is the vision funds and the Latin American investments saw reasonable markups in the second quarter. There were some other investments that were kind of contra to that, but they weren't actually the same efforts. They were just in the same line item. So they actually had an investing loss, I think, in the quarter overall. But I think SoftBank is confident enough in its results and also optimistic enough about AI, which they talked about quite a lot in their investor deck, to get back in the market. So the checkbook is flying again. Okay. Having covered the Latam region for a few years now, I have to say I feel a little bit, I don't know if validate is the right word, but kind of like a hmm to see that it's Latam investments, you know, were part of what helped it is helping its rebound because, you know, SoftBank did put a lot of money into the region, committing billions of dollars to invest there. And maybe that's paying off for them. Maybe that was one of the smarter things that SoftBank did. I think SoftBank has done many smart things over the years and many dumb things. It is the funnest company to to look at because their investor decks are amazing. They have like full 
page screenshots of like inspirational text, like AI. And it's just so <laughs> much fun. fun to look at. Right. Yeah. And I'm trying to find the number that you're discussing for us. And naturally, the moment I look for it, I can't find it on the uh, investor relations website. But I think there was a multi hundred million dollar markup for the Latham investments in the second quarter of calendar year, which I believe is the first quarter of their fiscal year. But everyone, if you want to just go double check that for me, I'd appreciate it. But Marianne, we got to go. Oh, we gotta, already? We got to well, get out of here. Time flies when you're having fun. Didn't realize time was up. And if people want to have even more fun by hanging out with us even more, they can do so on social media services like X and Threads, where we are Equity Pod, or over on Blue Sky, where the skies are always slightly gray because everyone's mad over there lately. We're Equity. Marianne, anything else before we go and chat to everyone on Monday? Disrupt, right? It's like five weeks away. (laughs) I haven't done my shoe shopping yet. Yeah, I haven't done any shopping either, but... If you want to shop for tickets, you can use code equity and get a discount. We'd love to see you there. Love to see you there. And we are once again kicking off the entire show, which means Marianne and I will be up there looking as posh as possible in the morning (laughs) and uh, trying to be funny in front of a live audience, which is very different than making one another giggle on Zoom. Yes, that's right. Yeah. No, join us. It'll be fun. It will be fun. All right. We are back Monday. Equity comes out three times a week. And if you need even more podcasts from TechCrunch.com, we have found in Chain Reaction, hot and ready to go for your enjoyment. Talk to you soon. Bye. Equity is hosted by myself, Editor-in-Chief of TechCrunch Plus, Alex Wilhelm, and TechCrunch Senior Reporter, Mary Ann Azevedo. We are produced by Teresa Loconsolo with editing by Kel. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. And a big thank you to the audience development team and Henry Picavet, who manages TechCrunch Audio Products. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.